From the History Yogi podcast, this is Dave. Singapore is a city renowned for its reputation as a stern, conservative environment. But history reveals a more colourful past, where queer people carved out spaces for their own voices despite overwhelming discrimination. Today, we speak to Isaac Tung, who has curated a walking tour exploring Singapore's LGBT past and discuss the significance of learning that history. Thanks very much, Isaac, for joining us today. To start off, what prompted you to design this LGBT history tour? So the backstory to this tour is back when I was actually traveling around Tokyo, Japan, and I got on Airbnb experiences, and I discovered that there were people actually bringing guests around different parts of Tokyo, to different LGBTQ bars. Most of it was bar-centric, you know, basically a bar crawler in essence. Um, and that's where it sparked me the idea that, hey, actually, if people can do this in, you know, in Japan, then why isn't this something which can be done in Singapore? So I actually embarked on this idea to do the, the LGBTQ bar crawl. Um, I spoke to a few owners and it was all supposed to, to you know, take flight. And then when I got on to Airbnb Experiences to register this tour, they told me that I needed to be a licensed guide to do things in Singapore. Because in Singapore, nearly everything you do needs to have a license. So, which is a good thing. I can see the, the, the silver linings of that. So what happened was that I had to, then the pandemic struck and then, you know, it was left with a gap of not much to do. And that's why I decided to do the license. But the license is not cheap also. But it was actually in doing that, process of the license uh ironically the bureaucracy of it is where i i started to realize that is this actually worth it you know just for a bar crawl you know is there more to lgbtq spaces and history that has more depth to you know merely going from one bar to another to drink and nothing wrong with going to one bar to another to drink it's just that i started to think about a deeper education about the history about the context and how these even bars came to be and so that's the genesis of uh of this, uh, how the tour came about. Given that awareness is low and resources are difficult to access, how did you gather research material for this tour? So a lot of it was, uh, okay, uh, thankfully we live in a a digital age. So there are quite a number of articles, research papers, publications that have been uh, replicated online or just simply published online. So that was a good point of where you especially during the pandemic period where it was hard to actually you know go forth and go out to just research and you know all this part of safety distancing and all these kind of things and it was difficult to access areas like public libraries and all this uh it was one of those things where it was available online i also have to give credit to people for example like this uh, individual called roy tan who has been instrumental in actually archiving a lot of lgbtq resources and so it's also through this kind of individuals that help the process along in trying to document and trying to curate everything. Actually, I have to say that we do not have a lack of resources. I think it's more of just how to find them and more importantly, how to curate them because having too many resources can also bombard any individual and it's information overload. So it's, it's, it's more of the curatorial process that was exciting because that's how it had to trim down and what was important and what was not important. But yeah, it was a mix of all sorts, uh, newspaper articles, books, YouTube videos from previous Mediacorp publication, uh, Mediacorp, what do you call that? Mediacorp TV show. <laughs> yeah. The, these are some of the examples of 
ways I could get information. What surprised you most about Singapore's LGBT history during your research? People who go on a tour or who are going on a tour, one of the main things that they highlight is, and I phrase this in the accent which they usually ask me, which is, Huh? Singapore or history man or LGBTQ history man that is really the the most frequent question I get and the thing is it also surprised me because here I was thinking when I first embarked on this journey of you know looking through material was how far back can this possibly go and then that's where it surprised me that it, it goes all the way to the 1800s it's something which is really present in Southeast Asia not just Singapore since back then and how different communities actually embrace different identities. And, you know, they didn't marginalize. They were actually people who kind of celebrated different individuals. And this was something which was uh, very unique uh, because I think most of us who are present today live through an age of uh, oppression or harassment or marginalization, a combination of all this. And, you know, we are here we are thinking that this is a... a Homosexuality is a thing which just came out and, and the differences were something which uh, born into adversity, but actually it was something which reached way back. Another thing which I also, also surprised me quite a bit was, so one of the things which was interesting was I had different individuals on the tour. Um, some of them are authors, some of them are more renowned uh, individuals in Singapore society. And then we also have some of them as lawyers who were behind the 3778 repeal. And so even from these people, I'm learning things every day. Not just these people, all sorts of uh, individuals who come on the tour. Now, historically, the queer scene has been concentrated near the Singapore River and Chinatown areas. Why is this so? Okay, you had to find out on the tour. <laughs> Actually, the Chinatown, Clark Key, Boat Key area is also adjacent to what is famously known as the Raffles Landing site. So this is supposedly where Raffles first landed in Singapore. Uh, it's disputed, but you know, th- uh, according to, to what is there by STB, that's where Raffles landed. And also where a lot of commerce first took place because this is a mouth of the river, Singapore River, right? And back then, this is where trade took place. This is where boats entered. This is where a lot of things were unloaded. Immigrants came in through the waters. So in a sense, this is a, this, that entire area is actually where a lot of the well, life started, where a lot of community started, where a lot of trade, commerce started, which is why you have your Raffles Place there, your Tanjabaga. And naturally, I think because it was the, a place of where the, it led to modern Singapore society, it's naturally going to be a place also where it's a concentrated queer space, given that your peripheral areas in Singapore, which is your maybe your north, northern part, your eastern part, your western part, were developed for other purposes. You know, you have your, aside from housing, which designated housing, which means that also you have more families who have moved there. You have places like Jurong, which is, you know, your industrial area, and then east side, which was your airport, and then you had resorts there back in the day also. And the north part, which was also not as developed at the point of time. So naturally, just by way of geography, uh, human geography, the queer spaces would have emerged there. Of course, there's a lot more detail to that in terms of economics, uh, in terms of uh, historical uh, significance. In a nutshell, this is what I would like to describe it as. Now, how has Singapore's queer spaces evolved since the late 1990s when visibility slowly began to increase? So a lot of queer spaces back in the day, I think were more transitory 
in the sense that they were not permanent. They could have been uh, areas that became a queer space, but they were not, you know, um, purpose-built buildings or or actual spaces that queer people inhabited or used. So this is also because, you know, of a lack of queer spaces back then, you know, and lack of conversations, diverse communities, even within the queer scene. So we didn't really have a space and most of it just grew out of necessity. So these are your things like your back alleys or, you know, along the beach, along certain places, cruising areas in the park and all this. Over the years, with better awareness, and I would choose to say higher acceptance, we have designated queer spaces. We have spaces that are allocated and are known both by queer communities and street communities as LGBTQ spaces. Most queer spaces now happen to exist as bars and clubs, which is a positive thing because there is a space for individuals to hang out and to feel that they belong and more importantly feel safe when they go there that they don't have to feel that you know they're going to be harassed or even physically harassed when they go into such spaces or hide who they are but at the same time i'm hoping that queer spaces can also evolve into more inclusive social spaces because not everyone drinks not everyone is a night owl and also, a lot of the designated queer spaces that are here in, uh, in today tend to be a bit segregated. So I have actually met many individuals, you know, who tell me that they don't, even though it's a queer space, they don't feel as comfortable being there because they don't feel that they are themselves in the space. And they also feel that the patrons and all, and the cust- uh, patrons slash customers are different from who they would usually uh, find solace with or find a community in so hopefully in future you know we have more integrated spaces more inclusive spaces uh and areas where people can choose to find their tribes and and feel that they belong but at least from back in the day we have come a long way so what is the demographic of your tour participants and how has their feedback been to you so far interestingly and actually, I'm very encouraged by this, have been as young as 12 years old. And well, old, in terms of how old they can, they, they can, they can get to, uh, I don't know, I don't ask, but there are definitely individuals who have been around and are able to relive like certain memories and certain tales, which I, I, I discuss. So the demographic is quite diverse. I think because there is a older generation I use the word older to say that they are older, but not particularly that they are very old or anything like this. But they are there, I think, also on two accounts. Number one, it could be to reminisce about, you know, memories that they had along certain areas and spaces and think about how things happened in the past in relation to their lives. But number two, which is quite interesting also, I think sometimes they have to also backtrack. <laughs> yeah. Because they they have lived that story. This is actually, uh, actually their tale to tell, right? So I think one of the things is that um, they come on board and they actually tell the stories. And it's great because there have, there have been times during the tour where there'll be a, a person who has lived that story and he actually stands in front of everyone and I encourage him, like, you know, please tell us, you know, because I think this is from the horse's mouth. It's the most accurate. So I actually don't mind it when people who have lived that tale tell me about the stories, sometimes even correcting me to say that, hey, actually, you know, this was not the particular spot. It was just slightly off here and all this because I think it's 
everyone has a different experience and there's no one lived experience. And so a lot of these tales that come from them actually help to form the stories that are told on the tour itself. For the ones who are towards the younger generation, they are mostly there because I think, again, there is, there is a lack of a curated resource when it comes to LGBTQ material. So this is honestly one of the fastest way, a two and a half hour, what do you call this? There's a word for this. Actually, it's a real question. What's the word for this? When it's like a crash course, yes, it's a two and a half hour crash course into your quick LGBTQ history uh, leading up to today. So sometimes it's out of interest. Sometimes it's because they enjoy walking tours. Sometimes it's because I actually have quite a number of people who join the tour because they want to meet other individuals who are like-minded. Remember what I said earlier about drinking holes? So the reason why I commented about that is because I do have quite a lot of participants who say that they, they don't actually like drinking. And in today's world, it's a little hard to meet different, uh, sorry, it's, it's a little hard to meet LGBTQ individuals because there are certain people who don't like the apps. There are certain people who don't like to go to the bars. And there's, there aren't actually other like social spaces, you know, that many. So they come on the tour to actually to meet because they know that someone who's on this tour is also like-minded to them, that they want to know about history. So this is also one of the kind of uh, demographics who have uh, co uh, commonly seen on the tour. The um, youngest generation are actually students or young kids. So one of the most inspiring moments for me and actually very, very touching moments was when I had a mom and a child on the tour because the child was trying to find their identity and trying to get to know who they are better. And it's one thing to be on this path on your own, but it's another thing to also have your mom on the tour with you in a very encouraging sense, you know. And it was a very precocious child, you know. There's a lot of knowledge which we, we kind of shared, we talked about. At the same time, the mom took this as a learning experience. The last, sorry, I know many demographics, but the last one is actually um, students. There have been schools who engaged uh, the tour. And it's something which I am pleasantly surprised. And also, it's a very positive experience for me. I think during my age, we never had this. We never had a school want to organize activities. In fact, in school, I remember very clearly that, you know, when we when it came to sexuality talks and talks about gender identity, it was always things like this is a phase of life or being homosexual is wrong. And you if you were queer, you kind of just, you know, sunk lower in your seat, you hit your head and you just didn't want to show your face because you didn't want people to know that you were queer. With Ping Dot over a decade old and 3770 repealed just last year, why is it important that Singaporeans know our LGBT history? History helps in understanding that queerness in a community has been around for more than a decade, for several decades, and that there are struggling communities and individuals who had to live through different periods of oppression, marginalization, and I think by understanding history is the whole point of knowing how we can be better as a society because we learn from, well, our mistakes and we learn from how people were treated in the past. And also we learned about how, well, there's, the queerness in the region was always there. It's not something that was manufactured or brought by the Westerners or the Americans as people like to 
allude to commonly. It's something that was in society long ago, you know. And so in, in history classes in Singapore, when we, were, when we learn about things like, you know, Hockney bus riots or uh, racial riots in Singapore, if we can learn from these historical events and the mistakes that were made and how we can better ourselves as a society, then why is it that we are not learning about LGBTQ history and seeing how we can also improve our approach in being more inclusive towards LGBTQ individuals. Could you give us three reasons why someone should go for your tour? The first reason would be to have a more comprehensive understanding of a very invisible community in Singapore. Historically, the queer community has always been around and have been active and contributing members of society. But if you are a person who is unaware of such a, such a community in Singapore, then it's something to be educated. And I don't mean this in a patronizing way. I mean it in a way that it's good to be able to recognize that there are individuals living around you who have been leading very different lives. And these lives may have gone through more adversity compared to some other individuals. It's not a comparison. It is just a historical... Is this something which may have happened historically? So it's, it's just good to know how certain communities were in Singapore. That's one reason. If you are not an educational buff, because I've had people who say, I don't really want to go on a tour because I don't really like the learning points of things. It's always a good opportunity to meet other individuals and like-minded individuals who may share the same passion and share the same interest. So one of the delightful things I experienced on the tour is that when we end off the session uh, at a social space and you know the entire group sits down, uh, a lot of times the different conversations that go on, and it's not just conversations specific to the tour or to LGBTQ history. It's just individuals getting to know each other and finding a different tribe than someone who you would normally meet, let's say, for example, at a club. So it's a different experience and it's it's speed dating without the added pressure of dating, I guess, of, you know, knowing, yeah, okay, cut that part out, but it's just me being candid in what I'm saying. A third reason is because as much as, as a tour guide, I am dispensing information and curating this tour for individuals, every single tour is also a learning experience for me because I meet people from all walks of life and not just locals. Uh, I meet a lot of tourists you know, who come from countries where being gay is frowned upon. Being queer is a, is a thing which they get discriminated against. And one good thing about that is that I also learn a lot of these stories. And I, get, I think that the only way for conversations to continue happening and communities to keep growing is for people to keep having conversations. This may not be the only platform, and it's not the only platform. You can have a conversation about community and about oneself and identity, but it is at least one of the many platforms where we can keep a conversation going. And as much as people learn from me, I also learn a lot from them. And a lot of times, with permission, of course, I take these stories and I try to build them into something uh, richer and a deeper experience for future guests on the tour so that there's more knowledge being shared. There's more resources that are talked about. And overall, there's a better understanding amongst different communities and different queer identities.